It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Kelvin Cochran, the former chief of the Atlanta Fire Department and the chief operating officer of Atlanta's Elizabeth Baptist Church. A Shreveport native, as a five-year-old boy, Kelvin was spellbound by firefighters fighting a fire across the street from his house and dreamed that one day he would be a firefighter himself. Kelvin has a bachelor's in organizational management from Wiley College, a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology from Louisiana Tech, and a doctorate in interdisciplinary leadership from Crichton University. His employment with the Shreveport Fire Department began in 1981 as a firefighter, and he was appointed fire chief in 1999. In 2008, he was appointed fire chief of the City of Atlanta Fire Rescue Department, and in 2009, he was appointed as the United States Fire Administrator by President Barack Obama. He most recently served as Chief Operating Officer of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He is married to Carolyn and the father of three children and has one granddaughter. Kelvin Cochran, welcome into the corner office. It is a pleasure to be in the corner office with you today. <laughs> well, it's so exciting. We met each other just a couple of weeks ago, talked about a month or so ago, coming back from the current 21 C12 conference. What a wonderful event that was. Kelvin was one of our speakers there. For you listeners out there that don't know about C12, it's a wonderful uh, peer advisory group for C12. Uh, CEOs that have a faith-based mission in their business. There's about 3,000 of us across the world. And uh, Kelvin gave a very emotional and impactful uh, message. And I'm sure we're going to be able to hear parts of that as we go. But Kelvin, how are you today? And in what part of the world did we catch you? Brent, all is well with me today. And you've caught me in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia today. Atlanta, Georgia, which you call home and have called home for some time. Yes, since 2008, I've called Atlanta Mm -hmm. home. Wonderful. Great. Well, we always like to start like, a little bit earlier than that. And uh, I know you've got a pretty interesting early uh, story message. And, you know, let's let's talk about that five-year-old boy, but give us a little bit of a uh, background, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Well, I'd be happy to. I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana in the mm-hmm. early, early 60s and um, born initially into what we would refer to brand as a nuclear family, a mom mm-hmm. and Dad, I had three big brothers before I was born, and two girls were born after me. So there was a total wow. of six children. Wow. Uh, but my dad left my mother uh, after my sisters were born, and um, she raised all six of us by herself. Wow. And uh, we were a very poor family. 
Uh, even when dad was with us, Brant, we were poor. Uh, but after he left, I, I like to describe it as we went to an even lower socioeconomic level. Mm. We went from being poor, P-O-O-R, to po, P-O. <laughs> Shorter and lower. Yeah. We didn't have enough income to qualify for the whole word anymore. And, uh, but my mother, being a woman of faith, uh, joined yeah. a Baptist church at the top of the alley that we lived in. And I remember from uh, that period when I was five years, I was five years old when we moved into that alley. And uh, life took a radical turn for me. But uh, my memory of childhood was very, very vivid starting in that period. Yeah, yeah. So what did, how did mom put food on the table for all five or six of you? Well, it was a challenge for her. She worked at a, a dry cleaner, but it wasn't enough. And so mm. uh, she had to rely on food stamps and uh, welfare from the government. Yeah. And even food stamps and welfare wasn't enough, Brent. There were times uh, at the end of the month where we would run out of groceries and uh, mom only had enough money to buy bread and mayonnaise. So we would mm-hmm. have um, toast with bread rabbit syrup for breakfast mm-hmm. and we would have bread and mayonnaise for lunch and dinner. And all the mm-hmm. sodas were gone and the Kool-Aid was gone. And so if we wanted something sweet to drink, we'd take a couple of spoons of sugar and uh, put it in a cold glass of water, and we would have sugar water with our mayonnaise sandwiches. Uh, poverty was very, very challenging. Uh, and my mom did the best she could uh, during those difficult times. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a what a what a saint she was. And uh, did you you know come to Christ pretty early in your life, Kelvin? It sounds like mom was pretty active in the Baptist church as well. I believe. Yes, she was. Uh, we were required to go to church. I mean, we were, when the church w- was open, all the kids uh, were at the church. And so uh, we were raised in church. And I can remember we had spring revivals every spring, week-long revivals. And uh, at the end of every service, they would, uh, what they call, we call it extending the invitation. But in those days, they call it opening the doors of the church. And so I remember at the latter part of one of those weeks of spring revival, Jesus became very, very real to me. And I was convicted in my heart. You know, the scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. So I went down during when the doors of the church was open and confessed Christ to be my savior uh, and uh, believed that he was the son of God who died Mm. rose again for my sins, and uh, he is in heaven with God the Father. Uh, and so I was accepted into the church. That following Sunday, I was baptized. Uh, wow. And, and what age was that again? Tom? I was about six years old. Six years old. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. And, um, you know, no father figure around. Who, who were some of those mentors that, uh, you know, kind of looked after you and perhaps provided you in, some inspiration in those early days? The most direct influence uh, on me as a man was the pastor, uh, Dr. Mm. E. Edward Jones, Sr. And um, he was just an amazing, iconic African-American leader and pastor. He had a beautiful wife and four children. Uh, one was my age and one it was younger than I was, but uh, had a beautiful family. And uh, looking at his family week after week, uh, I realized what God intended for a family to be. 
Uh, and there were other married men in the Galilee church that had wives and children. And so I just uh, observed those guys, Brent, growing up uh, in Shreveport through the years uh, and watching them um, throughout my journey of faith in the Galilee church gave mm-hmm. me a conviction and a vision for the family I wanted to have when I grew up. Mm-hmm. That modeling is so important. And uh, despite your meager uh, you know, beginnings, you went on to get not only your bachelor's and your master's, but also a doctorate. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but you must have started in a public school. Uh, were you a good student during those days? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, get, I just did the best I could. You know, one of the things yeah. that in my um, child development years in the early 60s, the grownups used to tell us all the time that all of our dreams would come true if we believe in and had faith in God yeah. and if we got a good education. And so uh, they emphasize education a lot. And so my goal was to just do the best I could in school uh, because I didn't want to be poor and I wanted to have a family like I saw the families of the men at Galilee Baptist Church. And they said to get there, you had to get a good education. Uh, I was not one of those straight A students. I had A's, B's and C's sprinkled throughout my years in in public school. Uh, But by the grace of God, um, I made it. What were some of those subjects that you enjoyed the most and excelled in? Uh, well, I was, uh, I loved English and mm-hmm. I, I was uh, an avid artist. I loved to draw. So Ooh, I took every yeah. art class um, that I could take. And in high school, uh, by the time I reached high school, Brent, I had fallen in love with architecture. I just loved uh, watching buildings and houses and was always interested uh, huh. in their design. So when my ninth grade um, counselor, uh, Ms. Velma Hudson, when I reached Woodlawn High School, asked me, uh, what did I want to go to college for? First of all, I hadn't even thought about going to college <laughs> until I reached about the seventh grade. And I got to yeah. back up just a bit. In the seventh grade, my teacher, Ms. Mabel Cutliffe, gave us an assignment to research two careers that we wanted to pursue mm. possibly when we were grownups. And so I, yeah. re- I researched architecture and I researched firefighter uh, yeah. because when I was five years old, there was a fire across the street from where we lived. When I watched those firefighters that day, I said, I want to be a fireman when I grow up. And so I mm. knew the two careers at the seventh grade. I, it didn't take me long to figure out I was going to do a paper on architecture and a little paper on firefighter. So when I reached the ninth grade and Ms. Velma Hudson asked me, uh, what was I going to go to college for? I said, architecture, because I remember that firefighters didn't have to have a college degree. <laughs> and so I said, architecture. And so right. she lined me up to take all the architecture classes. Mm-hmm. And there were classes in all four, four, four grade levels, ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th. And she really you had that in, you had in, the, in high school, you had architecture classes. Right, right. Wow. And nice. she aligned me with all the math classes that I needed to take to be a successful architecture student in college. I took, wow. I took all the architecture classes that she uh, recommended I, that I should take, but I skipped my 11th and 12th grade math classes and took oh. le- lower, easier math classes. 
<laughs> rather than the one she had she told me to take. So needless to say, when I reached Louisiana Tech with the goal of and major of being an architect, uh, after my freshman year, the first quarter after my freshman year, I found myself out on academic probation because mm. guess guess why? I failed the math classes that were necessary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, yeah. getting to Louisiana Tech, what an accomplishment for your, your very humble beginnings, Calvin. Did you, um, you know, ever envision that, uh, you know, you would go to college? Was that a dream that you had or was that something that was cultivated by the many mentors it sounds like you had along the way? Well, it was certainly cultivated. Uh, again, yeah. those memories of the grownups and all throughout our life, but beginning when I was a little child, saying if you want your dreams to come true, you have to get a good education. And so I was the first one in my family to actually go to college. And you can imagine the heartbreak of my mother uh, mm. after that, sec- that first quarter in my second year, coming home and telling her I wasn't going to get to go back the next quarter because I was uh, out on academic suspension. And so it broke her heart. But, no. she, but she said, uh, well, you can't just sit around here. You're going to have to get a job. And so I went to the Shreveport Fire Department's uh, yeah. headquarters office and put in an application to become a firefighter. Uh, and so God just opened that door. And that's how I actually reached that step. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, you uh, worked as well as you got through high school and junior high. How, how did you? you know, or, or get a scholarship? How did you, you know, pay the bill, so to speak, to get down to Louisiana? Well, I had uh, financial aid uh, because of the income level uh, of my mother. Um, yeah. You know, I qualified for some financial aid and, yeah. um, you know, she didn't have to, to pay for it based on the grants that were available for people of yeah. our income level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what other kind of jobs did you have while, while you went into both uh, high school and college? Well, that's a very good question, because at this stage in my life, Brent, I look back at every job I've ever had. I now call them divine assignments. <laughs> and uh, really because, you know, the Bible says that all the days of our lives are written in your book before one of them came to be. That's what David said to God. Mm-hmm. And so uh, our lives have been predestined. So my first job was... Um, selling the Shreveport Sun. It was an African-American newspaper that came out once a week. Uh, and I was in the seventh, seventh grade, and I had to go from door to door selling the Shreveport Suns and contributing that little income to my mother's, uh, to our household. And then I got promoted to uh, uh, being a paper boy, throwing the Shreveport Journal. It was the daily <laughs> evening paper uh, wow. that we had. And uh, from that divine assignment. I became a cook at a place called Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips. Oh, I remember Arthur Treacher's. Yeah, yeah. and I worked there for a few months <laughs> and got another divine assignment working as, as a cook at Catfish Kitchen, which okay. was across the parking lot from Arthur Treacher's. Uh, <laughs> and then I got another promotion to being a cook at El Chico's Mexican Restaurant. Uh-huh. And uh, from that assignment, I became uh, a firefighter. Yeah. But yeah. all the assignments that I had prior to becoming a firefighter developed in me a character, a work ethic, uh, mm-hmm. people skills, and other character 
related values that were necessary for me to be the firefighter that God wanted me to be and uh, put me in a position to be hired as a firefighter. Now, in your uh, education, higher education, you, you pursued a path of organizational management. In fact, I believe your bachelor's degree was in that. You got a master's in industrial and organizational psychology and then went on to get your doctorate in interdisciplinary leadership. Tell us a little bit about the choices you made for those you know, areas of study and, and, and what was the motivation? Well, I, as a believer growing up and being discipled and growing in discipleship through those years, I learned that the greater, the more we know, the greater our capacity to serve. Mm, yeah. And so it really drove my desire uh, for higher education. I never wanted to advance in higher education just for the sake of having uh, a resume that was very decorated or bragging rights about the degrees. Right. It was right. all motivated by uh, the fact that the more knowledge you have, the greater your capacity to serve. Yeah. And so I was... I was always, uh, one of my greatest fears, Brent, even coming up in my fire service career, was to be asked to do something that I was supposed to know how to do, but failed in doing it. I was, mm. I was fearful of being incompetent, if that makes mm. any sense. Mm. And so I worked hard not to be incompetent. <laughs> and uh, being one of the first African-American firefighters, on the Shreveport Fire Department, it was so important to me to demonstrate to my brothers in the fire service that I was competent because there was a stereotype about African-Americans that we shouldn't be firefighters because we could not do the job. So I worked very hard at being competent in practical skills, but I also wanted to be uh, competent in knowledge. And so my love for leadership eventually led me to pursue a bachelor's degree in organizational management. And uh, when I began to serve in leadership, uh, I had this tremendous um, hunger to want to know more about organizational behavior. And I I discovered there was a degree called industrial and organizational psychology. And that led me to pursue that degree at Louisiana Tech University. What's cool about that is uh, I flunked out of Louisiana Tech University in um, in 1979, uh, right. but I was vindicated when I graduated with my master's degree uh, <laughs> in 2002, I believe it was. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but even after that, a few years later, my hunger for uh, growing and development growing and developing leaders led me to pursue a doctorate and enter to disciplinary leadership at Creighton University. And I completed that, I believe it was at the end of 2019. Now you were working as a firefighter through all of those studies, correct? Yes, I was. Yeah. 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 So were they nighttime programs? Were they weekends? How did you kind of balance, you know, the workload along with the uh, study load? Well, the first two, the the, uh, organizational management degree from Wiley College, it was after work. Uh, and yeah. the degree from Louisiana Tech University was also after work. One of the blessings, as I look back, Brad, is the city of Shreveport during that time was paying for higher education for uh, firefighters and police officers, oh, 100% right. for the tuition and 50% for the books. Wow. But, but can you imagine that less than 10% of both 
firefighters and police officers failed to take advantage of that wonderful benefit. And pursued it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. but by the grace of God, um, I was able to do it after work. And of course, my doctorate was all online. Uh, right. And of course, I was uh, well into my career at the tail end of my yeah. career yeah. when I entered that program. So you start as a firefighter. I know that you were a fire training officer for a bit chief training officer, and then eventually appointed fire chief. Tell us a little bit about how you applied a lot of the principles that you learned as you're going through school to your day-to-day operations in firefighting. Well, that was one of the fun things about going to college uh, in a leadership position. Yeah. Uh, having the authority to implement the uh, precepts, the training, the organizational principles, the organizational psychology concepts, from one class to the next made it mm-hmm. so valuable. Um, it was just real-time higher education that I had, had to apply, had the opportunity to apply uh, as I uh, served in my city uh, from one class to the next. So that was a lot of fun, and uh, it made the higher education all the more meaningful. Yeah, a lot of practical applications there, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. How did Christ play a role in your career development? Well, I've always had this tremendous awareness uh, that my career was a calling on my life. Uh, Mm. And er, very early on in my career, firefighters uh, are servants. And, um, no, Christians are servants. And to have a career or a, a vocation where you actually live out your faith uh, in the mission of the organization, it just doesn't get any better than that. And so, um, you know, putting my life on the line to save someone's life or property uh, and then loving the brothers and sisters in the fire service as a family uh, just came natural for me as a believer. And uh, so, and then of course, when you get promoted to a higher rank, uh, again, it's it's about serving others, not lording your authority over others and, right. and pouring yourself into your followers uh, because uh, excellence in service cannot be achieved without uh, pouring into the followers you have to maximize the gifts that God has placed on the inside of them. So it's a balancing of uh, accomplishing the task while empowering and developing people. And it's a dance of leadership uh, that can be done very, very successfully when your heart is right towards God and when your heart is right towards people. And in our vocation, we have to have this awareness that it is God at work in us, both to will and to do according to his pleasure. In other words, Brent, what we do, we're doing it on his behalf and he, right. he is actually doing it through us uh, as his sons and his daughters. And so that's having that aware. Of course, we, we lose sight of that from time to time. But by the grace of God, whenever I lost sight of that, God would humble me to bring me back to a place to realize that anything that's good that's coming out of this body uh, is because of the goodness of God that is dwelling on the inside of this body uh, mm-hmm. Not that I'm all that in a bag of chips. Yeah. Well, I know you've written at least one book, and I'll never forget the title of it. Who told you you were naked? 
And before we talk a little bit about that, tell me a, a little bit about how, you know, your, your fire department experience was a mission field. Was that something that, you know, you lived day to day and just exampled and, and walked like Christ? Or was it really an opportunity to, you know, talk the gospel with a lot of your fellow colleagues and fellow firefighters? Well, in Shreveport, Louisiana, the culture was so easy. Well, let me say it much easier to live out your faith because yeah. uh, living out There's your faith. There's a Bible faith, bill. <laughs> right, right. Because it was sort of the it was sort of the culture. It was, I mean, we prayed before we ate our meals at the fire station. We had really? Bible wow. studies in the fire station. You would uh, walk in the dormitory and see firefighters in a corner with their Bible open or studying for their Bible mm. or Sunday school lesson. It was just a part of life in Shreveport, Louisiana. Your, yeah. your faith was yeah. lived out at work. Um, right. And so uh, there was no challenge there. In coming to Atlanta, it was somewhat different because there were multiple faiths. Uh, not so much that you could not or had to be careful uh, you know, blending faith and work, but you had to be conscious that there are more than just Christians in Shreveport. I'd say 99.9% of the people were Christian people. And most of them probably went to the same church. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or knew, or was close by, you know, so it was very, very, yeah. But in Atlanta, a lot more people, a lot more faith. So we had Christians, we had Muslims, we had you know, Jehovah Witnesses, we had a diversity of faiths. And so you just had to be careful of how you expressed your faith because, you know, certain other uh, people of faith may not believe. So you couldn't say you're, you should, couldn't pray openly out loud right, in, right. The, in the name of Jesus. It would be offensive. Uh, but from time to time, based on what was going on in the culture, um, I would still pray to start staff meetings. Uh, and when I felt the need to do that, I would end the prayer like this. I would say, Brent, and we end this prayer according to our own beliefs and our mm-hmm. own faiths. Right. According to my faith, I pray in the name of Jesus. So yeah. I would do that yeah. just so that I wouldn't offend anybody. Right. But other than that, it was not like I was walking on eggshells. I was never one of those. <laughs> I was never one of those Christians that felt like I'd had to carry a Bible around with me or quote scriptures, right. you know, every other sentence. I felt that the way I treated people and modeled my life and behavior yeah. would speak more about my faith right. Uh, right. than any scripture I could ever quote. So let's talk about the book. What was the motivation for it? And I assume it was written while you're in Atlanta. Yes, sir, it was. <laughs> um, I was conducting a men's Bible study called The Quest for Authentic Manhood. And one and, of the, and that was on the job or that was out in the community? That was at church, out in the community. At yeah, at church, in a men's Bible study at church, away from the work, away from the job, out of uniform, to make it, right, right. To make it clear. And one of the lessons talked about God's purpose for man. And I asked the guys, are men today still suffering from what Adam did in the Garden of Eden? Of course, they were all mm. Christian guys. And so they said, yes. And I asked each one to explain why they felt that way. And they took their turn, all 12 guys. And mm. as, as they were talking, that question that God asked Adam, who told you that you were naked, <laughs> it just kept replaying kept itself over and over again. So after, <laughs> after church, I went home, Brent, 
And I began to search the scriptures because I was curious, was God asking Adam more than who told you that you don't have on clothes? And so that led to a lot of uh, searching the scripture. One scripture would lead to another scripture. I would search words and phrases. And here's the outcome that what God was asking Adam, because naked in the context of the garden meant condemned and deprived. So God was asking Adam, who told you that you were condemned and deprived? And God's solution to Adam's nakedness was to take an innocent lamb, slay it, and use its skin to clothe them. And so clothed in that context meant redeemed and restored. Mm-hmm. And so uh, God shared with me that uh, I was talking to clothed men in my small group who right. were still acting like naked men. <laughs> I got it. And, and he wanted me to ask them and all Christian men who are clothed in Christ, who are still acting like naked men, who told you that you were naked? <laughs> because those who have been baptized in Christ, the Bible says, Brent, have been clothed in Christ. The bottom line is the book is how to overcome the stronghold of condemnation that many Christian men struggle with. Right, right. Well, the book got you into some trouble. Tell us a little bit about that. So good question. <laughs> uh, in the book, I dealt with some of the most challenging issues that we are struggling with in our carnal nature. And one of them is sexual sin. So I talked about sexual sin in about four paragraphs, going back to the book of Genesis, Mm -hmm. simply stating that God created male and female for procreation and for uh, holy matrimony because he wanted to have a family. God wanted a family. Right. And so he created a male and a female for procreation to have children in holy matrimony. The two shall become one flesh. But, uh, and to do it God's way, to procreate in the right way, it has to be done in marriage. And that any sexual relationships outside of that context, outside of God's intended purpose, is sexual sin. Uh, and I spoke in the para, I gave examples of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a man uh, who is having sex with another woman who is married, two single people who are mm-hmm. male and female, two males, two females. I gave examples of uh, sexuality that is outside of God's intent. And those right. paragraphs, a year after the book was published, was shown to an up openly gay Atlanta City Council member. Mm-hmm who was offended by, of course, the Bible explanation, the biblical explanation of sex and sexuality and marriage, who complained to the Honorable Mayor Kasim Reed, who was the mayor of Atlanta and my boss. Um, And when Mayor Reed received the complaint, he suspended me for 30 days to uh, investigate whether or not my views on sex and marriage caused me to discriminate against anyone. The investigation concluded that I had not ever discriminated against anyone under mm-hmm. any circumstances. However, due to the political pressure surrounding that issue, uh, I was terminated from my. And that was and that was back in two thousand nine, two thousand fifteen, two thousand fifteen. Yeah. Okay. So six years later, we live. Tell me about the blessings that have happened since that termination to you. 
Wow. Wow. First of all, I've learned five things from that whole experience. The first thing I've learned is God always prepares his sons and daughters for sufferings. He always prepares Mm. us for sufferings. We wouldn't be going through it had God not drawn the conclusion that he had prepared us for it. Uh, The second thing that I've learned is the toughest of the five things, uh, and that is that there are worldly consequences for standing on biblical truth and standing for Christ. But the third thing is there are kingdom consequences for standing on biblical truth and standing for Christ. And the kingdom consequences are always greater than the worldly consequences. The fourth thing I've learned is uh, that when sons and daughters of God have the courage and grace to stand under the fiery trial, God is glorified towards or in in the eyes of the persecutors. Uh, They get to see a side of God that they would have never seen had we not taken a stand. But in addition to that, the son or daughter of God who has the courage and grace to take a stand, we get to see a side of God that we would have never seen Mm. if we had not had the courage and grace to stand. And the fifth thing that I've learned, Brent, is for those sons and daughters of God who have the courage and grace to stand, their life of blessing goes to a level that is exceeding abundantly above all they could ever ask, or exceeding abundantly above all they could ever ask or think. Jesus, that whatever you lose standing for me, I will restore it 100-fold in this life. Uh, There are so many examples in scriptures of sons and daughters of God and the recompense that God brings for having the courage and grace to stand. Job received twice as much as he lost. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego became governors in, in Babylon. Esther inherited the estate of Haman, the guy who was trying to kill all the Jews. And Mordecai, her cousin who raised her like a daughter, He was promoted to be a prime minister over Mm. the Medes and Persia. Daniel became a prime minister. Joseph became a prime minister for the (laughs) sufferings he endured. And for the sufferings Jesus endured, he has the name above every name. (laughs) Every time a son or daughter of God has the courage and grace to stand, their life goes to a whole nother level. Here's the problem in the United States. There are sons and daughters of God in our country who have more fear in the worldly consequences than we have faith in the kingdom consequences that God has promised. Mm. So true. So true. So you're currently chief operating officer of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta. How did that come about? Well, when I was terminated from employment uh, at the city of Atlanta, My pastor, Dr. Craig L. Oliver Sr. said, hey, wait a minute. I've been needing a chief operating officer (laughs) for the past several years, and the mayor just gave me a gift. Would you you be willing to be (laughs) my my chief operating officer? So I came on as the chief operating officer at Elizabeth Baptist Church six months uh, after 
I was terminated. And the only reason why it took six months for me to actually officially take on the position, Brent, is because uh, the, the body of Christ in our country rose up in such great unity and support. Uh, for the first six months of, uh, following my termination, every Sunday, I was in somebody's pulpit sharing my story about the blessings of sufferings and the courage and grace to stand. Now, now you heard my story after the fiery trial was over. That's right. But what you heard on two weeks ago, I was saying the same things at the front end of the fiery trial before God ever came through and vindicated me. Mm. And the point behind that is God had so equipped me and prepared me for what I was going through. I had this joy, Brent, mm. of victory and vindication four years before it ever came to pass. Amen. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, and so what are some of the responsibilities you have now at uh, Elizabeth Baptist? You're, you're still in that role today, correct? Well, I've got to give you an update. No, I'm no yeah. longer in that role uh, okay. as of about um, 10 weeks ago. All right. And uh, God is positioning me for another assignment. And, um, and we're uh, just going to have to have a follow-up podcast. Yeah, on we'll that. have to follow up <laughs> on it. You know what's amazing about God? You know, I knew he... he uh, he told me that, that it was time for me to, my, my assignment at Elizabeth Baptist Church had come to a close, uh, but he didn't tell me what he wanted me to do next. And so I had to just step out on faith and trust him. Uh, and he's been faithful. Uh, mm -hmm. The only clue he's given me about my next assignment is that it's going to be exceeding abundantly above all I could ever ask or think. Fantastic. Well, we're just about out of time, Kelvin. It's been a wonderful story. But we always ask one last thing, and I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on this. And, you know, and that'd be what kind of advice would you give someone who is, who is going through suffering, going through trials and tribulations at the moment? Maybe they've lost their job too. Maybe they've been falsely accused of something. Maybe they've been terminated because of COVID. You know, we're recording this in uh, mid-May and it's probably going to be released sometime this summer. But, you know, the pandemic is still around us with less than, half of people vaccinated in this country, what, what would you tell them? What would you tell someone who has just learned of, you know, uh, uh, a very significant, you know, employment issue that's, that's hit them personally and hit their family. And, you know, maybe they're full of fear about being able to put food on the table. Maybe they were like your mom back in those early days, raising five, six kids and not knowing, you know, how she was going to do it next. What, what would you tell them? I want to share a scripture that's become my foundational scripture, and I think it'll bless the people that fit the categories you've just shared. It comes from First mm -hmm. Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, that says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when mm -hmm. his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Mm -hmm. So we should take a disposition of hope, of faith, of joy, of being happy, knowing 
that the sufferings that we're experiencing will lead to a greater level of joy and rejoicing once the suffering is over. Another scripture, Brent, is, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we have to have confidence that the word of God uh, is absolutely true. Uh, I've discovered, Brent, that the seasons of our life, according to scripture, are cultivation, seed, time, and harvest. In Genesis 8, 22, it says, as long as the earth remains, seed, time, and harvest, and day and night, and cold and heat, and summer and winter shall not cease. All the seasons of our life, uh, we experience cultivation. God has to cultivate us. Mm. And that's what sufferings are of any sort. They're cultivation. And the reason why we go through cultivation is because the next season, Brent, is seed time. That's right. And God, God never sows seed into ground that's not been cultivated. <laughs> that's right. Got to be churned up a bit. <laughs> right. And there are too many of us as sons and daughters of God. We want to live a life of perpetual harvest season to where we're just always producing fruit. But the kingdom right. of God doesn't work that way. Yeah. Harvest only comes when we have the season of cultivation, the season seed. of seed time, and then harvest. And because God wants us to increase more and more to bear much fruit after the season of harvest, guess what season is coming back around? Cultivation. That's right. And then seed time and then harvest. So it's a life life cycle of cultivation, seed time, and harvest so that we can produce fruit at every age and every stage of life. So the reason why we should be rejoicing and suffering is because we ought to be excited that God is cultivating us right. because he's preparing our ground for seed time. Yeah. And after the seed is sown, <laughs> there's a period of calm and rest and peace as the seed is producing and growing. And then harvest season is coming. Yeah. So I would Beautiful. just say harvest is on the way, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Hang in there. Kelvin Cochran, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story into the corner office. Thank you so much, Brent. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 